One person might say, well, in order to be fair, you have to show bias from the left and bias from the right. And another person might say, in order to be fair, you have to just show the most accurate thing possible because that's really the gauge of fairness. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a multidimensional thing, fairness. It's not, it's not even as simple as just rep- representing people on both sides. Because if you have the people on one side telling you lies, well, how fair is that? Hello, and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. In this week's episode, I talk with David Hencherik, an electrical engineer who has worked in the telecommunications industry for over 36 years. David and I discuss the controversy regarding free speech and, quote, big tech, the technology companies that make our internet and social media usage possible. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, social media companies suspended accounts, President Trump's most notable among them, and hosting companies took websites offline. To many, these actions felt like attacks on Americans' freedom of speech. But were they? It's not such a simple question. Do private companies infringe on individuals' freedom of speech when they don't permit them to use the company's platforms? In a world where most political speech has moved online, have those platforms come to be our newest and most important public square? And which is more important? Companies' rights to their private property or individuals' rights to use that property for public speech? David and I spoke at such length on these questions and more that I split our conversation into two episodes. Today's is the second part of that conversation. The first can be found in last week's episode. If you haven't heard it yet, I suggest you go check it out before listening to this one. Today's episode covers the fairness doctrine, the differences between bias, accuracy, and fairness, the question of whether officeholders should always be allowed access to social media platforms, how social media companies cooperate with the government when it comes to threats to public officials, the unintended consequences that might result from efforts to restrict social media companies' ability to censor content on their sites, and the importance of considering matters of conscience when it comes to those who work in, quote, big tech. David Hencherik is an electrical engineer who has worked in the telecommunications field for over 36 years. A majority of his experience has been in the areas of satellite communications for consumer and national security applications. While David's primary responsibilities have been in the analysis and design of these systems, he is also involved in business development and exposed to commercial and national security industry customer communities. David has taught scriptural studies throughout his adult life and has been a Catholic catechist for the past 10 years. He is keenly aware of the moral benefits and evils that are made possible by the telecommunications industry, as well as how conscience considerations are applied within it. Our conversation was recorded on February 5th. All right. Um, David, something that I've been hearing a little about recently is um, is the fairness doctrine, which governed, 
I think it's essentially like political speech on um, like broad on, on the broadcast on radio and television and such. Could you explain what that is and explore how maybe it connects to what we're experiencing today? Yeah. So, you know, broadcast radio didn't really begin until around 1910. Broadcast television didn't really begin until the 1940s. So post-World War II, I think it was somewhere around 1947, I could be off by a year or two, um, there was the establishment in uh, FCC law, uh, I believe part 47, I may be wrong about that particularly, uh, called the Fairness Doctrine. And what this said is with the advent, just like uh, Section 230 in 1996, that kind of looked forward to what the internet may become, Congress looked ahead in the 1940s to what broadcast uh, radio and and um, broadcast television might become, and they instituted what was known as the Fairness Doctrine. Now, what this stated, and I haven't read it recently, uh, what it stated is that if you were a broadcast radio program or a broadcast um, television program and you discussed political opinion, that you had to give equal time to um, uh, opposing opinions. And of course, what that ultimately led to as television and radio became more and more popular is it led to not very much political programming and uh, because that's difficult to balance, right? So you may have had mm -hmm. shows like Point Counterpoint, uh, you know, that actually had a debate between two sides or things like that. But for the most part, uh, anything that could be viewed as a one-sided political conversation had to be countered. Now, the, the cons prevailing conservative environment in the 1980s was very opposed to this. Like, why, you know, why I, I own, you know, similar to my arguments about uh, internet providers, uh, they, they're like, well, I own a radio show, I own a, a, a TV station, why can't I put the content on that I want. And they, they were successful. And Congress overturned the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And you'll notice what immediately ensued uh, was uh, political programming, mostly conservative political programming. So that's when uh, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, uh, many of these conservative programs started to become very popular, enormously popular, and they were not required to give a counterpoint, which would pretty much ruin their programming when you think about it. So it, mm -hmm. conservatives were, if you counted yourself a conservative in 1987, there was a very high probability that you, you supported the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine. Um, so today, one would think that conservatively minded people would be opposed to uh, uh, the requirement that a private internet provider be forced to be politically fair. Uh, but what we're seeing is that's not so much the case. And I think it's just a, that's just a function of more of a populist view than a conservative view, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, the Fairness Doctrine is uh, 
there's been some articles um, that are interesting that, that kind of remind, you know, attempt to remind Republicans of how they felt in 1987 and how they feel now. So there is a, um, there is a, a relationship there. And that goes to the private property versus uh, free speech law. You know, the tension between private property and free speech. Yeah, that's this fairness doctrine is something that I can also sort of see both sides of. Like, mm-hmm. I think the idea was essentially if the government is in charge of the airwaves and these um, stations are licensed to use them, then the government could say, well, then you're going to approach this fairly. You know, so I, I sort of see that that rationale, like it's important for a healthy democratic debate to have like both sides represented like, okay, yeah, I see that. But I can also see, well, yeah, if I own like a Catholic radio station, can't I just be true to my mission as opposed to having to also air the people who vehemently disagree with it? Like it's, these are, these are really interesting questions. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because like my, my parish has a radio station and um, Mm. it's, you know, obviously in today's environment, um, no one, well, I'll never say, I should never say no one. Very few people would argue that, that, that it's it's within our rights not to, uh, uh, you know, have, uh, equal number of hours for other religions to broadcast their content on our station. No, it's 100% Catholic 100% of the time. And we have full rights of uh, uh, editing on that station because it is, it is personal and private. The, um, um, however, you know, you know, and, and, and there is a corollary today because there are layers of access to the internet. I provide, or my company provides, you know, raw bandwidth for many, many applications. Facebook provides, you know, or Amazon provides web hosting for many of these applications. That's why they were able to knock Parler offline for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Facebook has sub accounts, private accounts, right? So my church, for example, has a Facebook page, and we have full rights of editor editorship on that Facebook page. So if section 230 goes away and uh, Facebook's not allowed to censor, does that mean that my church's Facebook page can no longer censor material? And that's obviously problematic. If yeah. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. Right. Mm-mm-mm. Fairness is uh, not a very constitutional subject, and, and uh, you'll you'll find that we, our, our our human nature tends to cry out no fair, but but there's really nothing in the Constitution that says you know everything has to be fair. Yeah, fairness is also really subjective. It's like in the eye of the beholder. Right. Um, there's there's a lot of discussion right now about. Um, at least something I've been thinking about right now, I'm sensing notes of and a lot of discussion I'm seeing is the the difference between bias and 
accuracy. So like when you're looking at news sites, news sources, some people right now are folks so focused so much on biased. They want something that is either biased in their the way they prefer or that has as little bias as possible. Um, but there's sort of a separate plane of accuracy. Personally, I don't really care much about bias because I figure like I'm a big girl. I can, I can, mm-hmm. I can sense it. I can, I can discard it if I want to. I just want to make sure my news um, sources are accurate. Um, I can forgive someone some bias as long as they're telling me the truth. They may be putting a spin on it that is in their favor, but as long as the facts are there, I'm okay with that because I can see through spin. Um, so at any rate, you know, you can, you can look at fairness in applying it to both bias and accuracy in different ways. One person might say, well, in order to be fair, you have to show bias from the left and bias from the right. And another person might say, in order to be fair, you have to just show the most accurate thing possible because that's really the gauge of fairness. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a multidimensional thing, fairness. It's not, it's not even as simple as just representing people on both sides, because if you have the people on one side telling you lies, well, how fair is that? So it's, you know. It's it's yeah, it's a good point, and I don't think I've ever quite thought of it that way. But yeah, is is it fair if you have uh, ex- extreme lying on one side and extreme lying on the other? And it does, it's not very helpful. Right, accuracy is helpful. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were just to make up to like um, two politicians, one who is truthful to a fault. Um, and the other one who is not, um, but maybe you prefer the politics of the one who is not, mm-hmm. you know, I, like, how are you going to balance fairness in there? Yeah. I mean, one person might, might be so truthful, they could be shooting themselves in the foot. Um, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just tricky. <laughs> it is very tricky. And you bring up a good point. And that's why I think, you know, fairness uh, probably, and, I, and of course, I'm waxing philosophical at this point. But fairness is probably better applied not not at the on the transmission side, but on the reception side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is uh, sort of plucking this out, but when it comes to like Donald Trump and Twitter, until the sixth, my thinking had been. As much as I disagreed with him, I thought there was just this like inherent value of almost no matter what, allowing the sitting president to be on these public platforms Um, because they like it or not, they are the sitting president. What they think and say is important. And so therefore there was just inherently value in um, in being able to follow them on these big platforms. Um, I totally get the quandary that Twitter faced after the sixth and I understand where they were coming from, but I don't know what, what do you think about that? Like, do we have to really wrestle with that? Like, what do we do with office holders while in office? And is that different than we might treat private citizens? So, 
I, I struggled with that too. And, and quite frankly, just as a matter of personal opinion, I felt that the permanent ban was a bridge too far. Um, mm. The uh, I don't know what the thinking was. Jack Dorsey himself has publicly struggled with the fact that Twitter did that, and I think he may be deferring to other people in the organization. He he cited it as a precedent that that he himself felt was dangerous. I. I think in the case of POTUS, the first thing I want to, to shed some light on is just because a company denies access to any individual, be it POTUS or, or anyone else, doesn't mean that that person has been silenced. There are, mm-hmm. especially when you think about the president, the president can walk outside on the sidewalk anywhere in the world and say what he wants to say, and it is going to be on. Uh, is, is going to generate an enormous amount of media coverage. The fact that Twitter, mm-hmm. he doesn't have that direct pipeline through Twitter is uh, should not be viewed as a silencing. That's just one platform. That's just like the fact that mm-hmm. when you think about it, uh, if CBS, you know, if the president gives a national address, CBS does not have to cover it. Uh, of course, they want to because everyone's watching it. And, um, you know, so there's no requirement for any media outlet to cover something the president is saying. Now, granted, social media is a different thing. And granted... But he can also reach out directly to supporters via email and text. I mean, somehow I make it onto these lists and I get get plenty of emails um, from politicians that I don't want, you know? So, however... so. To, to return to the, the, the Twitter conversation, I, I think Twitter has some regrets about that because, first of all, it, it's an enormous, enormous revenue loss for them. I think that, um, and I hate to use the word they because you know, anytime you use the word they, you're, you're casting a broad brush. But I think that corporately, Twitter's decision was based on the sex. I don't think it was politically motivated. If it was politically motivated, when you think about it, um, what were Donald Trump's chances of being elected in 2016 without Twitter? Uh, Probably very small. He used it to great advantage. He used it very differently than any other politician has ever used social media and very directly and very coarsely and very, um, he, he was able via that means to resonate with emotions that were very popular uh, among a, a very broad section of, of um, the electorate. So it was very powerful to him. Um, if Twitter just wanted to be political, they could have limited that at any time they could have done it in 2016 they could have done it during his presidency they could have done it during the 2020 election they did not interfere during any time that would have prevented um um, um, president's election or Mm re-election um that's those were the times to be political at the point that they Mm -hmm. did it it was post january 6th and Again, this is very extraordinary. You know, this this message of a stolen election was not only 
resonating but amplifying and you know if you if you you know we had all these other factors QAnon, uh, uh proud boys all of these um political organizations and um it, it, it wasn't only resonating it was actually amplifying so you know small waves mm-hmm. are becoming large waves and and people died and um directly, indirectly, uh, without pointing fingers at that, uh, uh, you know, whoever made these decisions at Twitter said, we have to cool down the temperature. Now that, uh, and I'll I'll bring in another uh, point in my background, which I can't talk about very specifically, but um, generally, um, uh, you know, uh, Secret Service, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, as well as all of the intelligence agencies, and there are several, the um, Justice Department, they will contact us as private companies and have us uh, uh, ask us to cooperate in in doing certain things to prevent uh, activities that they feel are going on. And I suspect although I can't say for sure that that may have been in some of these cases that may have occurred. Um, and it's, I won't speak for any other company, but if, um, and I won't even speak for my own company cause I won't make that decision. I'll be aware of what, what we've done in the past, but um, we would cooperate. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. now the particular thing, I don't know about POTUS, but in the case of, of Lynn Woods uh, being taken off of Parlor. Um, and just if for people who aren't familiar, he's a, a lawyer who has um, been spouting a lot of really inflammatory and um, um, dubious uh, claims. So Lynn Wood actually made some posts that were very threatening to the vice president of the United States. Right. And that's as far as I'll, I'll go with that. But I would be shocked. I, I don't know what occurred, but I would be shocked if Secret Service was not on the phone with Parler that day and said, as a matter of fact, I would be shocked if Secret Service didn't make a personal appearance and said, okay, you know, because you, Secret Service is responsible for VPOTUS and POTUS. It, it doesn't take much of a threat to get a gentleman at your door, uh, if you've made such such a, a threat, they they are on the side of supreme caution, and I would not be surprised if that wasn't uh, re- requested through Secret Service. DHS mm-hmm. gets involved in these types of things too, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, things of that nature. Uh, companies like my own are constantly has to block certain IP addresses over our networks if if we feel something is being coordinated. And again, that becomes a matter of conscience. Do you want mm-hmm. to be part of something uh, that causes loss of life or violence? Right. Um, you've touched on this a little bit throughout the conversation, but um, what what do you think about the claims of political bias in big tech. I mean, 
I think the whole conversation is pretty interesting because you have, on the one hand, you have um, people on the right complaining that social media companies are biased against them. On the other hand, you have people on the left who feel almost like there's a bias in the other direction because they see so much um, really strong right-wing chatter on on social media. Um, I don't know. It just you see complaints from from both sides, and I actually I wonder how much conservatives are aware of that. That people on the other side also feel like it's biased. You know, like I, yeah. I feel like just like fairness is in the bio, eye of the beholder. Sometimes bias is in the eye of the beholder. You know. Uh, anyway, I just wonder what you think about this. So I have um, ten children. I have uh, two sets of twins, and among children, you'll hear the word about fair and no fair a lot. And among twins, you really hear the words fair and no fair. <laughs> Mostly no fair. Uh, it's amazing when you look at a set of twins, how, how different their perspectives of fairness are. And basically what it generally amounts to is if I'm getting my way, it's fair. And if I'm not getting my way, it's not fair. Right, yeah. And the same thing, of course, exists in politics. Um, I do know this here. I'll speak to what I know. I know that as an internet provider and knowing what other internet providers do, um, these studies are constant. It's just like political polling. Uh, they are constantly looking to see that across certain segments of demographics of their customers uh, uh, is their bias. And it's pretty easy to measure. And I know that in order to maximize revenue in, in uh, uh, of course, there's differences, right? There, there are certain, you know, obviously Fox News wants to be viewed as toward, toward the right, OAN, one, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know they say fair and balanced, um, but, um, you know, that's their business model. Right, that's their clientele. Yeah, they're definitely pointed to a particular right. place on the political spectrum. Right. right. So, so now that in social media that could exist, and then you'll do that. However, if you want to maximize rev revenues, you want virtually everyone. Facebook is much more successful when when they're appealing to a broad spectrum of individuals. Same is true of Twitter. The larger ones. That's their demographics. They want everyone on. They want to be ubiquitous. They want uh, they want everyone from the grandmother that's just proud of her grandchildren. Yeah, the big tent. The big tent. And so they are constantly attempting to balance their clientele so they have a larger one, and then they can sell that to their advertisers, and that's what their advertisers want. So that's what they do. And... Um, I know these studies occur. I've read one recently, as recently as January, that, that showed that Facebook was, in fact, very evenly balanced in terms. Now, I'm sure people on the left don't feel that way, and I'm sure people on the right don't feel that way, just like my one of my twins will look at it differently than the other twin. People want to win. They don't want, they don't really want fairness, not at, not at their core. They want mm -hmm. to win. So I've personally seen friends of mine that, that fall on the, the liberal side of the spectrum have things blocked. Um, I do know this. I do know that 
you know, in the events of the last several months, there may be a skew against, you know, certain conspiratorial information, not because it was, uh, uh, it leaned on the right side of the spectrum, but because that in the present time was leading toward violence. So if you look at one week between January 6th and January 20th, you may very well find that's skew. Obviously, when you block content from the president of the United States, it's going to appear like a very large skew. Uh, but, but over time in general, I think the free market system is what balances that. Um, the free market system has a really, you know, can be far more effective than legislation can be because things like fairness mm-hmm. are difficult to define. But where money talks, it's very easy to define. So I, I think the free market system actually serves us really well mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. in this case. Yeah, that's that was a good point too. I hadn't thought about that to to look on a broader scope. Like, yeah, if you look at that one week after January sixth, you're you're looking at a moment in time. Um, you maybe need to look at a little longer view to get a bigger picture. I mean, I know too, like right after the 6th, I think that Twitter at least suspended just a bunch of accounts. I mean, they probably suspended accounts that had either used certain hashtags or that had like, you know, closeness to certain elements that they deemed dangerous. Um, And then I think as they, I think they lifted some of those suspensions as they like maybe got a better read on the situation. I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking of some accounts that I, I know of that were um, suspended, but then later lifted that really had no tie to what happened on the 6th, but maybe, you know, had a hashtag in common or something. I don't know. You know. So QAnon caused a lot of that. So QAnon is very right. easy to identify. So, so I believe it was Facebook and probably Twitter. I can't remember, but I know Facebook decided, okay, just no QAnon. Any material related to QAnon is not going to be published. And that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you if you are a subscriber to QAnon, you're going to view that as very unfair. I followed a lot of the QAnon posts just to see what these guys were speaking about. For a long time, I felt like they were playing a game of like Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, they were just imagining mm-hmm. things and creating ideas and, you know, these images that were so unrealistic of what was being plotted and the war about to take place and things of that nature. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was getting more and more scared just looking at, uh, and these were people I knew that were posting these mm-hmm. things. And uh, it, it, it became easy to understand why they simply had to kill that content. Mm-hmm. It was very, very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think of the example. So like my daughter's birthday was the other day and um, someone posted like, oh, happy birthday to her and and put in there, can't wait to see you when COVID is over. So like substantively had nothing to do with COVID. It was just happy birthday. I can't wait to see you when we can safely get together again. But of course, because the word COVID was in there, it got flagged. 
And um, so I guess I, I think of it that way. Like, I think there are a bunch of people who were maybe caught up after the sixth where totally innocent things got flagged because a term or, you know, something had also been caught up in QAnon, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm hopeful that as these like artificial intelligence things get better and, and hopefully you get better sort of like systems for, for challenging um, penalties within Facebook and Twitter, you know, um, hopefully as those systems get better, we'll see less of that. But you know, I can understand people's frustration if they're like, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> Look what happened. Yeah. Um, so I, I get that, but I don't, yeah. yeah. I do. I understand it. And um, hopefully this will all settle down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, goodness, yes. All right. So um, obviously this whole issue has become so heated and divisive in recent years, and especially since the January 6th attack on the Capitol. If you had to boil everything down into like two or three simple points, what would you hope that Americans would consider as they process this whole issue and the debate surrounding it? Um, I Mostly... Uh, I would like people to consider to look forward at, at what the unintended consequences of applying uh, quote fairness unquote uh, to to internet sites and um, and understand that if 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 censorship is removed that also means good censorship is removed uh, or the danger of that is and and the the things you enjoy you know posting pictures of your family and uh, you know uh, uplifting uh, posts about your faith or, or or and civil discourse on on harder issues are things that could suffer or that we could not enjoy except in the presence of things like uh, dangerous material to your children Things like um, nude pictures and foul language and all those things that um, many who argue free speech argue uh, uh, should exist. You know that yes, pornographers should be allowed to post things, and we should be allowed to discern whether we look at it or not. Well, um, I think I think most people especially you know people of faith raising families um, don't want that world so so that's mostly what I'd like people to consider is what what might we lose if uh, if we take away the ability of these platform providers uh, to remove content or censor content that, that that's the main that, that's my my main yeah. issue and then the other thing is just to consider, the second level would be to consider the matters of conscience that I, uh, um, you know, please stop, uh, uh, you know, looking at, at all of us as, quote, big tech, unquote, or, or people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mm-hmm. been through things in our careers where uh, our inventions, just like Oppenheimer's invention and Einstein's invention, uh, uh, we don't want these things used for evil. And um, it's a really bad feeling when you labor day in, day out 
and get a glimpse of evil things that that your work has supported. Those are the two main takeaways that, mm-hmm. that I'd like mm-hmm. to, you know, as you, I understand the arguments, the balance between free speech and private property. Um, and, and the courts will, will you know, this will be fought and, and the courts will land somewhere. But, but those two things, you know, the, the, the concept of uh, protecting our children and, and people in general from dangerous things. And the fact that 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 we are not this one big glob called big tech, we're people with consciences. Yeah. Oh, that's an important reminder. David, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been fascinating. It's not something I spend a ton of time thinking about, but once you get into it, it's um gosh, it's so important. <laughs> and it's it's something in this day and age that we all need to be thinking about to some degree. Well, I enjoyed it, Julie. And uh, thanks for what you do. I enjoy <laughs> your you. your podcasts, and uh, uh, I think it's important to to bring a uh, a moderated message to to some heated times. Well, thank you, thank you, and thank you for your time. Thanks, Julie. I hope you enjoyed the second part of my conversation with David Hencherik. And if you haven't yet listened to the first, I hope you'll check that out too. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it and that if you like it, you'll share it and leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at theaswellsblog.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.